I just think that Bitcoin's accretion of value is going to operate very differently to anything that we've seen before because for the first time in history we've got an exponential technology built into a money. Looking at the potential risks with Bitcoin relative to all other assets, if people understood just how risky shares, properties and bonds were right now, the price of Bitcoin would be multi-millions of dollars per Bitcoin. All the upside that people think they've missed out on are not going to get, there's more upside left in front of us than behind us. And when people understand that, they'll just buy Bitcoin and they'll avoid all the pain and misery of chasing altcoins, degenerate trading and gambling. And they can get on with effectively improving their life by just buying Bitcoin and being patient. Introducing the Blockware Marketplace. Start mining Bitcoin today. This has the potential to transform the mining industry as now anyone can buy a Bitcoin ASIC using on-chain or Lightning, see its historical and live hash rate before purchasing, and be earning Bitcoin mining rewards in minutes. This brings transparency and turnkey mining to a whole other level. Start mining Bitcoin today at marketplace.blockwaresolutions.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on a special guest, Peter Dunworth. Peter, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Joe. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Peter, I definitely want the audience to learn more, a little bit about you and your background. Can you tell us? Sure thing. Well, um, I'm based in Sydney. I run a multifamily office where we look after maybe a dozen uh, very high net worth families. We look after investment and advice for these families across a broad range of assets, ranging from shares, property, bonds, um, and my all-time favorite, Bitcoin. So we're tasked with the responsibility of reducing risk in a, a client's portfolio, producing outcomes that are going to outperform the market. And uh, it's our sole responsibility to reduce risk and increase return across our, our family's portfolio. So thrilled to be here. Awesome. Have you always been doing that as far as your career or have you done other things in the past? Great question. Well, I've, I've been around finance my entire life. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur himself, uh, taught business literally from the age of eight upwards, uh, which was both a blessing and a curse. Um, the insights you gain from watching a small business grow into a medium to relatively large size business is uh, a wonderful insight. Um, studied accounting and finance, so I've got a, a, a deep grounding in theoretical accounting and finance. Uh, moved into investment management 20, nearly 25 years ago. Um, working for BT Funds Management, one of the largest fund managers in Australia at the time, and then moved across to the credit markets, working in mortgages uh, for a number of years before then coming back to the other side of the balance sheet. So um, I'd say my skill set is fairly varied across both sides of the balance sheet. So I've got a, a fairly deep understanding working on both sides of it, um, how to uh, how to extract value or how to actually measure what something is worth. So. It's a, it's a great grounding for, for something that's quite a novel technology in Bitcoin. So feel very blessed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I found your Twitter, I think you DM'd me and, and, you know, Bitcoin Twitter is such an interesting space where you have, you know, anonymous or pseudonymous people that have like interesting profile pics. And I remember like seeing yours and like right now you have your name, but it's like an emoji as your profile pic. And I was like, who is this guy? Like 
crazy guy like DMing me. And you actually turned out to be like one of the smartest people that have actually reached out to me once I got on a call with you and understand who you actually were. So it's funny because I guess on Bitcoin Twitter, you know, some people will DM you and they'll be like pretty insane. And then other people, they'll be synonymous and they'll be like extremely smart people that like work as a managing director at like an investment bank somewhere. So you were definitely on the more intelligent end of, of people that have DM'd me, but it's crazy to think think about Bitcoin Twitter in that way. That's the blessing of Bitcoin Twitter. It's just, it's a varietal feast. It's it's the best. You get to see all sorts on there and you get to learn so much. So um, we've we've had a great relationship since that. And, you know, you've helped out enormously. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, let's dive into, to like, I guess, traditional finance and how it relates to Bitcoin. From your perspective, how do investors value, you know, traditional finance assets like equities or real estate or credit? And then why do those, your the valuation methods that, you know, traditional investors may use to value those assets, why are those not sufficient for, for valuing something like Bitcoin? That is a big question and I'll just go through it asset by asset. So if you look at how we think about valuing certain things. We'll start with stocks because that's probably your equities, what, what most people think of as a valuation metric. Um, typically, if you look at, you know, the best investors over the years, they've typically used a, a valuation method based on Benjamin Graham's value investing, which is effectively um, trying to figure out a price earnings ratio of a stock. So what that does is that effectively gets the earnings per share um, of a company divided by the value of the share and you end up with basically a number. Um, it, it's basically effectively like a discounted cash flow determining how much cash a, a, a share generates and then developing a multiple on top of that to determine the value of it. So that's typically how we look at stocks. There are other methods for valuing stocks and, and growth stocks have have got a different metric altogether, particularly the SaaS companies. They've got uh, just literally a, an entire range of valuation methods that are somewhat a variation of that, but that probably best encapsulates it. If we move to property, property's a, a different beast altogether, although it has some guiding principles of you know, how to value a stock. Typically, you look at you know what are the rental yields that are given on a on a on a certain property. There are other methods of, of valuing property. Uh, you might look at it from a comparable sales perspective, where you look at you know what did this sell for recently, what has been the recent uptick in the market. Alternatively, you can have a price per square foot of a property to determine what that would be. Um, but typically, it's it's it's. It de it's determined by what type of property you're buying. So different types of property have different valuation methods, but in a roundabout way, it comes back to effectively what, what you think the value of that is and how you can ascribe that and potentially sell it in the future. So that covers us off on equities and, and property. And then when we look at bonds, bonds is effectively like a discounted cash flow, similar to shares and, and property in that you look at you know, how, how, what, what is the interest rate that you're receiving? What's the coupon that you're going to be receiving on this investment? And, and what's the expected future value of this? So you, you look at that and you basically do a discounted cash flow where you figure out, okay, well, it's an interest rate of 5% and it's going to pay out that over the next whatever many years. I can afford to pay X for this. So really simple valuation methods across shares, property, and bonds. And that probably covers us off on, I would have thought, 90% or more of the investing universe. So fundamentally, most of those come down to discounted cash flows. And if we look at 
why this is going to be a difficult way to, to value Bitcoin is, you know, we've got 90% of assets effectively valued with this discounted cash flow, but Bitcoin has no cash flows. So how do we value this thing that doesn't derive an income for us? And without sort of going into the weeds of what happened in the last 12 to 18 months, a lot of people got burnt trying to find a yield in Bitcoin. And there fundamentally is not a yield possible right now with Bitcoin. So these valuation methods that we're, we're looking at trying to apply, it's trying to put a, a round peg in a square hole. It's just not going to fit. So we, we need to think about a, a better or a different way of thinking about how to ascribe value and how to create a valuation framework for Bitcoin. And that's what I've spent a lot of time looking at. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I think it's, you laid out exactly why traditional finance has such a difficult time understanding Bitcoin. And I think it was one of the biggest hurdles that I had when originally getting into Bitcoin. I was like, oh, this is obviously just some sort of bubble because you're never, ever going to get like your dollars back. It's never going to earn you any sort of yield. How does this even make any sense? And I think a lot of people get tripped up on that idea. And I think you've done a great job with your work articulating, you know, how can Bitcoin actually have value and, and you know, how does this work? So I know you've created this framework for valuing Bitcoin and, and you have six different steps and it's, it's really great. And we're definitely going to walk through this in a second. It reminds me of, of Trace Mayer's like, set, I think it was like seven or eight network effects of Bitcoin. And I think those were like really good. You know, when he ever, he came up with that, like five, 10, seven years ago, whatever it was. Uh, but these, you know, six steps that, that you came up with are really great. Um, let's definitely like dive right into them. So I know the first step for valuing Bitcoin in your framework is laying out assumptions. What assumptions are you making for this valuation framework? Really, it comes down to two assumptions and very simple. And I think most Bitcoiners would agree with it. We have a 21 million uh, Bitcoin hard cap, so we can't have any more Bitcoin than 21 million. Um, I can go into the reasons as to why we will never have more than 21 million, but I'm just assuming that, you know, people have done the work that understand that we're never going to have 21 million. Uh, the next assumption that we have is we're going to look at the fact that blocks are going to be produced every 10 minutes on average. And I, I struggle to find a way, and I think about this daily, how can this network be stopped? And I don't see that. So I think the two assumptions that we're making are fairly reasonable assumptions from a Bitcoiner's perspective. Yeah, I think those are great. I, I, I would be curious to hear your perspective on you know why the 21 million is fairly amenable and, and can't be changed. Would it, how would you respond to that? From a game theory perspective, I think it's almost impossible to change. And I'll just go through a potential attack vector or an example of an attack vector that if it were to happen, we would be able to effectively avoid or thwart that attack. So me personally, you know, I look after a certain amount of Bitcoin in my custody. That's, you know, what I've got. You've got your certain amount of Bitcoin. Everyone probably listening to this has an allocation. If they don't, please get an allocation shortly. Um, and, and what we do is we, we effectively own a certain portion of the network. And we ascribe or, or subscribe, I should say, to the rules and the, the regulations of the network. And one of those rules and regulations that we subscribe to is that there are only going to be 21 million Bitcoins. I personally run a full node. I run a couple of them. Um, so do a lot of my clients. And if for whatever reason that 21 million hard cap was to change, 
me and my nodes can effectively move to another, another, well, we can stay on the same system that we were on previously. And we, we don't have to be subjected to someone arbitrarily telling us that there's now 42 million. And from an economic incentive game theory perspective, I'm going to do what's in my best interest. And my best interest is not to be by, diluted by 50% because a government comes in and says they want some, or Apple says, hey, we've got this great new tech, we're going to take 50% of the Bitcoin network or whatever reason that may be. I can still run my own node subscribing to the original rules of the network that I originally signed up to, and I don't have to give my node permission to go onto the new network that's going to dilute me by 50%. So I think understanding that, that you as a um, participant in the Bitcoin network have full control over what you do and don't participate in is probably a huge thing for people, particularly with a finance background, to get their heads around because they're so used to being in the paradigm that, hey, here are the rules and regulations that we are going to set on you rather than being in full control of the rules and regulations that you subscribe to. 100%. Yeah, I think those two assumptions that you laid out are, you know, definitely very reasonable, right? I mean, most people in the Bitcoin community and outside the Bitcoin community understand that, hey, there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. And, you know, if you run your own node and you enforce that rule, someone's got to convince you to up to change your node and change that rule. And most likely, if you don't want to change the rule, you're not going to change the rule. Um, so, yeah, I think those are completely fair. So in your six step framework, that's the first step, you know, understanding those assumptions. What's the second step in your framework? So the second step is understanding the tech innovation that has been brought to us, whether it's innovated or discovered, I'm not sure. Um, depending on who you speak to, they'll have a different framework for what they think happened. But I will tell you that there are four completely novel tech innovations that happen with Bitcoin that have been brought to light that we have never seen before. And I think this goes part of the way of the difficulty that we have trying to understand Bitcoin. And let me just run through those four key innovations for you. The, the first, I believe, is the absolute digital scarcity. So this is the first time in history that we have effectively a hard cap, absolute digital scarcity. Absolute scarcity hasn't existed in our world when it comes to an asset class or alternatively anything on earth prior to mathematical digital, well, mathematical, mathematical absolute scarcity. And now we can apply this to a network and an abstraction of an asset on a network. This is completely revolutionary that, you know, when, when you sit down and look at this and actually think about it, there is nothing that compares to it. And we'll go through some of the comparisons on that. So that is a huge novel innovation in and of itself that is completely game changing. But then when you pack on top the other three innovations, and I'll just quickly run through those, the, the next one is effectively seizure resistance. Well, for, you know, an asset prior to Bitcoin existing, it had to exist in the physical world in some way, shape or form. And I could effectively brute force take that from you. If you were holding a piece of gold in ancient times and you were clubbed on the head, that asset still exists. And people would take that because there was value. And now for the first time in history, with 12 words you can store in your head, you can walk around with effectively your entire net assets. And if someone hits you on the head and, you know, something happens, a $5 wrench attack, things like that, you can pass to the grave for the first time in history with that asset in your head where the perpetrator of that crime will not take that asset from you. This is a revolutionary thing that we in Western democracies, I think, fail to comprehend the, 
the magnitude of that because we live in a relatively peaceful society. We live in a place where there are, you know, firm property laws, property rights, and, and they're enforced by a fair and equitable system. But for the majority of the population on earth, they're not living in a system like that. So all of a sudden, the, the ability to store your value in your head and not, not tell everyone what you're actually walking around with is of huge value to people. But we just don't know that yet. So that's the second innovation, which I think is grossly underestimated from a Western society perspective because we have such great property rights. The third one is uh, censorship resistance. And this is the ability of Bitcoin to allow anyone who's going to subscribe to the network's uh, rules to effectively make a transaction. So for the first time in history, there are no gatekeepers with those transactions or messages, however you want to determine that. And this is a complete game changer because up until now, there has always been a gatekeeper on any transaction. It's always been, you know, effectively a middleman standing in the middle, whether that's a bank or a government or some other form of institution or authority, which has the power to censor any of those transactions. And what's really unique about this is, and say, you know, I look at what happened in Canada last year from a, you know, from a, from Western perspective, you know, what happened to the Canadian truckers last year with their bank accounts being frozen, that was effectively Ill illegitimately frozen um, by the government. All of a sudden, this brings a third world problem to the first world that we never had to contend with in our society. Now, all of a sudden, there is a real concern around censorship resistance. If for whatever reason, you're not friendly to the state or the, the state deems you a bad actor, they can literally put their finger on the button to stop you transacting from your day to day bank account. That is a huge overstep, I believe. And it, you know, Canada, I would have thought would be the last place on earth where something like this would happen because they're all so friendly up there and <laughs> you know, they've got a great rule of law. Um, yet here we are in 2022, beginning of 2022, we see that happen. And all of a sudden that's a big issue. But ironically, Bitcoin was there to enable transfer of value to a system or to people who was shut out of the traditional banking system. And that was a huge advertisement for that, that third innovation, which is censorship resistance. The final one or the final innovation, which personally gives me the most juice and I think has the most value, but to the majority of people, it's the most boring, but bear with me, it's the best part, um, is the immutable ledger supply and issuance. And this is the first time in history that we've had an immutable ledger. And that is a profound, innovation that I can't, I can't overstate how important that is. This is the first time in history that we've had that. And then when you couple that with the immutable supply and issuance, all of a sudden we have a setup for a super asset that we've never seen before. And understanding the tech innovations one by one, I think are trillion dollar inventions themselves. But when you couple them all together, I think they all get lost in the wash. It's you know, you look at it and you think, wow, these innovations by themselves are spectacular and I believe worth trillions of dollars. But you sort of throw it all in together with Bitcoin and it's like, it just gets lost on people. I'm like, what are we not seeing here, people? There is a huge tech innovation happening here that, that sets us up for a step function change in technology. And that technology then applies to the function of money. And, and this is where part of this process going through this valuation framework, trying to understand or spread a message that we really haven't seen anything yet when it comes to Bitcoin's price action and 
trying to set us up for, for what is to come. So that's the second part, the tech innovation. Sounds great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we definitely need to get into the third part, which is going to be combining a lot of those ideas together. Uh, but first, I think having that immutable, perfect, perfect scarcity that you talked about is just an absolute game changer in my mind, because, you know, people have historically thought us thought of gold as being a scarce asset. But when something is increasing its supply at roughly, you know, maybe 2% of year per year estimated, that's still exponential growth on a long enough time horizon. So like, if you take that assumption and you say, okay, how much gold was available back in the year 1800 or 1820 or something like that, there was actually more gold mined in the year 2022, if you take the 2% supply growth, annualized supply growth assumption, there's actually more gold mined in the year 2022 than there was gold that existed in the world that was mined from eternity to the year 1800, which is pretty crazy. So like- It's supply... insane to think about. That is insane to think about. Yep. In one exactly. year, we've got, and, and this is the thing, gold goes back 2000 years more in history. They've produced it for probably maybe 10, five, 10,000 years, take your pick. And then since 1850, we now do it more than was in yeah, that whole 2000 year period. In one year, we produce more. That's a wild thought. People get lost it's, on it. Exactly. And, and comparing that to, to Bitcoin, it's so obvious. But it's funny that people think of gold as just being this perfectly scarce asset when in reality, that's completely not the case. Um, but I think this sets up really well to what you were wrapping up with before with your second point is the third point in your valuation framework is Bitcoin being this triple point asset. Can you explain that? Yeah. So um, in, in going down rabbit holes that we all go down in Bitcoin, one of the rabbit holes I went down was thermodynamics. And the triple point in thermodynamics is um, was a novel thought to me that I only looked at maybe in the last two or three years. And this is a point where an element is in all three states at the one time. So in a beaker, you can put water in a beaker and under certain atmospheric temperatures and pressures, you can have ice, steam and water all in the one beaker. And the reason why I call Bitcoin the first triple point asset is because for the first time in history, you have got Bitcoin as the best store of value, the best medium of exchange and the best unit of account. So it exists in perfect equilibrium as the best asset for all three use cases. And this is where, if we go through why that is the case, well, just really briefly, I'll run through that, you know, Bitcoin is a better gold than gold because not only do you have uh, absolute scarcity, which is better than 2% scarcity or 2% inflation rate, um, you have the ability for that to be seizure resistant. And if we look at a recent, um, example you know there's a lot of countries on earth right now which would love a, a seizure resistant asset and i just think of uh, russia and what they're you know they're going through at the moment uh, when you look at medium exchange um, that's been dominated by the us dollar for the last hundred years and i don't think this is going to be displaced anytime soon so i'll just make that perfectly clear i'm not naive to think that the us dollar dominance is not going to be around for a long long time but I will say one thing that is an improvement or an upgrade that these tech innovations give the US dollar um, or that Bitcoin has over the US dollar is going to be that it's censorship resistance and it's got an immutable issuance and supply. So we've seen with COVID a huge amount of money printing. Anyone listen to this pod, like one of the best educated you know, um, listeners 
in, in the space is, you know, we're all fully aware of what, what inflation has happened to the money supply. You know, 40, 50%, take your pick, choose your own adventure on that number that it's going to be, but you've effectively got a huge increase in the money supply to facilitate the, you know, the trade of goods. Whereas you compare that to Bitcoin and we've got a supply and issuance schedule that we can literally map out to the year 2140 and beyond. Whereas we don't know what the Fed's doing. And this is, you know, part of my problem with the job that I, I do is, you know, traditional finance basically has me staring at the screen, wondering what colour tie Jerome Powell's going to wear today to his presser and whether or not that's going to be good or bad for interest rates, which fundamentally sets the risk-free rate of the world. And if so facto, determines what, what my investments are going to do from a traditional finance perspective. So the medium of exchange, I think, gets dislodged with a better form of money in the fact that there is censorship resistance and an immutable supply and issuance. And then when you go to the granddaddy of them all, when it comes to a value or market cap of value, you've got the unit of account. And we've been using up until this point, you know, there's without sort of wanting to bore anyone, but it's kind of critical to understand is we've had a history of accounting that started with a single entry ledger. We then moved to a double entry ledger, which led to effectively the Renaissance and a global boom in trade. And that was a huge tech innovation that happened 500 odd years ago. We haven't had a tech innovation in accounting for the last 500 years. And then along comes Bitcoin, which is effectively a triple entry ledger system that is an immutable ledger. It cannot be changed. It literally cannot be changed. And that is a tech innovation in itself. And then the fact that any participant on the network can actually download the complete ledger. This is a massive step function change in unit of account technology that I don't think gets anywhere near enough airtime. And I think Darren Feinstein did a great job from Core Scientific in sort of bringing this to the fore, but it's something that gets um, no attention. And I kind of get why, because it's accounting and accounting is boring as. So I understand it. But when it comes to a market cap perspective, this is where a lot of the juice comes from, I think, from a market cap perspective and a future you know, evaluation framework for Bitcoin. So... That's really important. If you've thrown your hands up trying to run a lightning node, relax, you're not an idiot. It's not intuitive and manual management means you won't survive. The guys at Encrypted Energy are fans of the pod and have 20 openings in their private beta for readers to trial automated L&D operations like rebalancing and channel fee management. Email paul at encryptedenergy.com and mention Blockware Intelligence for personalized onboarding. Foundation is one of my favorite Bitcoin companies. Their product, Passport, is one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets on the market. It is air-gapped and highly secure. I strongly encourage you to go to foundationdevices.com and use the code BLOCKWARE and get $10 off your Passport. It's a great way to easily and securely store the private keys to your Bitcoin. Yeah, thinking about Bitcoin as a unit of account, I feel like it's going to change so many different things. And I feel like not enough people are thinking about what implications that's going to have in the future. So totally agree. Um, let's jump to your fourth point. Uh, what is your for fourth point in your valuation framework? So the fourth step is thinking about linear v exponentials. And Humans are really good at thinking in a linear fashion. If you look at all of the valuation frameworks we've got to date, they effectively look like a linear model. 
you know, you effectively use a discounted cash flow, you punch in some assumptions, and using those assumptions, you can forward out basically on time what you expect the future value to be at certain points in time based on certain assumptions. That's great linear thinking, and this is where humans have been fantastic at doing that. But where we really struggle, I believe, is with thinking about valuation in exponential terms. And Bitcoin, I believe, is the first exponential asset that we've seen. And the reason why I think it's the first exponential asset is because we're looking at Bitcoin um, in isolation up until now. And this is where I think our, our limited framework of thinking about valuation with from a linear perspective is limiting our full understanding of what this thing really is. So if I go back to you know what makes Bitcoin unique from a, a function of money perspective, we've effectively got store of value has been gold up until this point. Now that's being displaced by Bitcoin, I believe, because Bitcoin not only gives you everything that gold does, and I might just put a caveat on this, Bitcoin doesn't have the longevity, the 2000 year history that gold does. So I understand that, that sort of, uh, that critique, but I'm pretty sure Bitcoin's going to be around for the next thousand years. So that, that's going to become less and less of a point as we move forward. But it's a better gold than gold because it's got absolute digital scarcity and it's got the ability to be seizure resistant. That is wildly powerful in a world that's moving from, I guess, a single power in the US to, you know, the thought of having bricks in a multipolar world. So that in itself is a huge upgrade. Mean of exchange, we've talked about censorship resistance and the ability for that to happen. All of a sudden, you know, logically thinking about this is that Bitcoin is going to replace effectively the US dollar as medium exchange. And I don't expect it to happen in the next 10 or 15 years, but over time, people will have experiences where they've been censored and they will just refuse to use what's available. They will want a trustless money that they can have full control over. So that is represents an upgrade to, to the US dollar. And then the upgrade to the double entry ledger that we've got in a triple entry ledger means that I think for the first time we've got three functions of money competing for one asset. And that is the exponential. All of a sudden you have three technology or three functions of money competing for one asset. This has never happened before in history. And this is why I think we as Bitcoiners have sort of suffered from a linear framework of thinking in that we need to be thinking about this exponentially. And I'll, I'll just sort of give you an example here. If you go to a property auction and there are no bidders on the property, what happens with that? Well, typically the property passes in, the, the vendor is lucky to get the price that they wanted for reserve because anyone who's bidding on this property knows there's no interest. So the asset goes for usually below the reserve price that the vendor wanted. When you compare that to a, an auction where there are many bidders bidding on that one property, what happens? Well, that price gets bid up dramatically, it passes the reserve and usually exceeds the reserve by you know, a substantial percentage of what they're expecting. And what I'm saying here is, is that for the first time in history, we have got three use cases, three functions of money competing for one single asset. And the best part about this is no one knows this yet. Like, in a relative basis, less than 0.1% of the world has even cottoned on to the possibility that this is going to happen. And you and I are sitting here thinking, we know what's happened. For us, it's effectively a fait complete. It's just a matter of educating everyone else to understand, say, those functions of money, how that affects, you know, how these tech innovations are going to effectively transform 
this asset. And I'm not saying that those assets are going to go to zero. They're not. I just think that Bitcoin's accretion of value is going to operate very differently to anything that we've seen before because for the first time in history, we've got an exponential technology built into a money. And that is a first in history. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of my favorite like analogies for linear versus exponential to help humans grasp this concept that you're talking about is, I think Jeff Booth said it first, or in the Bitcoin community, if you have a piece of paper and you were able to fold that piece of paper 35 or 36 times, how thick would that piece of paper be? And you ask people this, they're like, oh, this thick, this thick. And like, actually that paper would stretch from here to the moon. And people are like, what the heck? But that's the power of exponentials. If you do the math, it, it actually makes sense. Um, but what's your, okay, so I think linear versus exponentials, that's great. What's your fifth point in your valuation framework? I think it's understanding supply demand dynamics. And this is where, you know, when you look at demand and supply, and this is literally something I've been studying since high school, you know, that was economics 101. What's a supply demand curve? Well, what does it look like? Well, there's a demand curve and there's a supply curve. Um, this is where we have a completely unique asset in that there is a fixed supply curve and it practically you know, does not budge. It can't go any further than 21 million. So it's fixed there and then it can only work backwards. You know, there is an expected 4 million lost Bitcoins. So, okay, we're only working with 17 million Bitcoins. So when you think about that, we've got a fixed supply, which is the first time in history that's happened. And that's a function of the absolute scarcity. So that is a complete game changer that's very difficult to model. But then you look at the demand side of things and you think, okay, well, where does demand come from and what does it look like? You know, we've been really lucky or fortunate. You know, Bitcoin has had an upward trajectory of uh, people adopting it. So we've got more and more users on the network. And if you look at the, the graph, you've effectively got up and to the right for the last 14 years or 13, 14 years since inception and more and more users come to the network to use it. And you've got growing wallet balances across 0 0.11, 0 0.01 of a Bitcoin. So that's all positive news. User adoption is a big thing in driving demand. And then I look at, um, you know, from rough numbers that I do, you know, you look at the daily supply, uh, daily sold, the volume of, of trading. You know, if we, if we were able to create 100 million users saving $10 a day, which doesn't sound like a lot, on a relative basis, given there are 8 billion people in the world, we effectively set the floor of Bitcoin's price at roughly a million dollars. You know, that's a long way from where we are now, 28,000. And, but 100 million users saving $10 a day is not really a big deal when you look at what are the function, you know, how big the markets are out there. And that's assuming a pleb army of 100 million people saving $10 a day. That's not Apple saving, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a day because they're, you know, producing cash that they can't put anywhere else or oil and gas producers needing to save money or all this money that the Saudis, that the Chinese, that the Japanese have in bonds that they want to put into a much better asset. All of a sudden there's trillions of dollars, well, potentially trillions of dollars a week that could flow into Bitcoin. And I'm talking about $10 a day from 100 million people. It's a billion dollars of demand sets it at a, a million dollars roughly. That's not a big ask. That's not a big change from where we are now. It just needs a little bit of education and there's a chance that we see, you know, 
100 million people pick up Bitcoin in the next bull run. Yeah, 100%. You know, you mentioned a million dollars as as your potential, you know, future price of Bitcoin. When you think about Bitcoin on a very long time horizon, and we can actually, before I jump to this, maybe you have a sixth, sixth step in your framework that you're welcome to go as much into depth as you want. You can go as little as you want. Um, but I think it is worth kind of mentioning. How do you think about Bitcoin with your, your sixth and final step of your valuation framework? I'll probably touch very briefly on this because it gets technical and I don't want that to dilute the message, which is this is an exponential asset. And I could literally talk all day about this because this is, for me, what really contributes to the exponential quite dramatically. And this is where um, what I'm talking about and what is a huge game changer for us as a society, but no one's talking about this yet, but we're going to have to get our heads around it really quickly because in the next 10 years, I think it's going to basically bring in the most significant societal change that we've seen. And that is when you have um, the first triple point asset in Bitcoin and you have the ability to time lock it into the future without any ability to bring that back to today, all of a sudden this is a complete game changer for finance. It is a complete game changer for putting up collateral and fundamentally, the biggest market in the world is collateral. You look at the derivatives market. Fundamentally, that is in some way, shape or form, effectively a collateral market. And when you have the ability to time lock Bitcoin, which is a triple point asset, time lock it and then have that as effectively a collateral to a contract. And it can be any contract. It could be a bond. It could be a bond contract, it could be a derivative, it could be effectively a telephone contract, it could be a, a deposit on a house, it could be absolutely anything. But when you think about the ability, what time locking brings, what that does is that effectively takes supply out of the market for Bitcoin. And this could you know, mean that we've only got less than 100,000 Bitcoin or less than 100 Bitcoin in supply to facilitate daily trade because I think the market for time-locking Bitcoin and ensuring absolute scarcity is going to be a huge market that no one's really talking about. I don't expect traditional finance to figure this out for at least 10 years, but this is a huge shift in in society, what this means for us and what we can um, effectively bring in with this. And when you combine a triple-point asset in Bitcoin with time-locking, I call it the first quantum asset. And this is the ability to send an asset through time without, with zero attenuation. There's no dispersion, no dilution, no inflation to that asset. And so that you can send that through in time and effectively know that you are still going to own whatever percentage of the network you own into the future. And in my thinking, I'm thinking this network's only going to continue to grow and effectively swallow value, like that meme of, you know, the black hole of value. And if you've got an asset that you can send through time totally unadulterated for 100 years or 10 years or five years, whatever you might want that to be, that is going to be hugely powerful. And this is something that's probably, we could discuss for hours the implications of this, but um, on, on a very brief note, I'm glad we've got that thought of a quantum asset out there and what sort of change that can bring to society. And it will fundamentally bring in, I think, a, an, an event horizon for, for finance in general. That, that is what garners it in. Yeah, this is like a topic that I had not really thought of in depth until I heard you speak about it. 
I think it's fascinating and yeah, we could dive into it forever, but that might be another podcast. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, how you came to the idea that, okay, at some point in, you know, the future, Bitcoin could be a million dollar asset. When you think about Bitcoin, you know, from a, a very long time horizon, maybe, you know, 20 years, 30 years, what do you think could be the potential future market value of, of Bitcoin? I, I think, and, and this is where I'll sort of apply to two valuation metrics that I look at. So in, in my head, in my understanding and looking at the potential risk with Bitcoin relative to all other assets, if people understood just how risky shares, properties and bonds were right now, the price of Bitcoin would be multi-millions of dollars per Bitcoin. Like fair market value should be substantially more than that. And in very, um, very rough metrics. Um, in my head, I'm walking around thinking that Bitcoin's currently got a fair market value of $7 billion a coin. And if the rest of the world thought like me, I'm pretty sure we'd have that valuation in the billions, not millions, because very simply, I get to that, that valuation, and I believe that valuation metric could be ultra conservative. But that valuation metric is drawn about by looking at the global trade on a daily basis, which is roughly $6.3 trillion, give or take. And this is where I share the numbers so people can input whatever numbers they put. I'm just laying out my thinking so people can critique the thinking, which I'm more than happy to hear. But you've got 6.3 trillion in global trade and you've got 900 Bitcoins minted on a daily basis. If people understood what this asset was, they wouldn't be trading it. They'd be earning it to spend it. So we'd only have 900 Bitcoins on a daily basis on a very best best case basis to facilitate global trade. So divide 6.3 trillion by your 900 Bitcoins. And that's not accounting for the fact that we could have state mining, state Bitcoin miners that are basically hoarding all their Bitcoin and don't have to sell because they can mine for free. You can have people saving. There's a whole lot of limitations um, or constraints that I can put in that model. But simply speaking, you could have a $7 billion Bitcoin tomorrow and that to me would be a relatively fair market value for that. And that's not even thinking about what the exponential valuation model should look like, because if you look at the exponential value of Bitcoin, it should be a whole lot more. And, you know, you think about what Bitcoin should be when you think about the exponential, that is going to be realistically, I think a model for looking at that is going to be looking at the total market cap and store of value, which is roughly 10 trillion, multiply that by the market cap of the USD, which is 100 trillion, and multiply that by the market cap of the unit of account, which is 2,000 trillion. Now, I don't even know what that number is. Like that's, that really is a, that's a big, big number. And I don't even know how to describe that number, but that is something infinitely bigger than what we're working with now. And part of the reason of talking to you um, is trying to get a valuation framework out there that people can critique I'm more than happy to be told where my thinking's irrational or wrong or flat out stupid. I'm, I'm here for the critique. So if anyone's got feedback on it, hit me with it. Um, I'd love to debate it with you. But what I'm trying to do is show that to noobs who aren't in Bitcoin, that all the upside that people think they've missed out on and not going to get, there's more upside left in front of us than behind us. And when people understand that, they'll just buy Bitcoin. And they'll avoid all the pain and misery of chasing altcoins, degenerate trading and gambling. And they can get on with effectively improving their life by just buying Bitcoin and being patient. 
and then they can pursue things that they're actually going to deliver value to society for rather than end up being degenerate gamblers staring at a screen trading all day. So that's part of the reason for getting that out here. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think you are now going to rival Loop Royals as the most uh, bullish blocker intelligence podcast, but I think that's, you know, fantastic. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting, right? Like you look back and you see, you know, when computers first came out or hard drives first came out, it may have costed like a million dollars to store like a megabyte worth of data, which like nowadays is insane. Like you can log on Amazon and buy like a multi terabyte hard drive for like less than a thousand dollars, like maybe even like a hundred bucks. So like that magnitude exponential change is kind of an example of what you're saying is playing out and has historically played out and is about to continue playing out in a very extreme exponential aggressive manner and no one's really late to bitcoin it's really just getting started is is kind of your your perspective yeah and and this is where to to help new people to bitcoin avoid the pain that all bitcoiners all bitcoiners have probably gone through um avoid altcoins there, there really is only one one way they go relative to Bitcoin and they're going to bleed out to zero. Um, we have historically had huge troubles thinking about the technology and what that brings in. And one of my favorite examples, you know, similar analogy to your gold um, analogy that you mentioned earlier, but in the 1850s, there were only 2000 barrels of oil produced in the entire year. And today, 100 million barrels of oil are produced on a daily basis. Now, if you ask someone 170 years ago, hey, do you think we're going to be able to produce 100 million barrels of this and you've taken a whole year to produce 2,000? They would absolutely tell you, no way, you're crazy. How can you think like that? Yet, all of a sudden, fast forward 170 years and we're at 100 million barrels a day. And my point is, is that whether you think, you know, whether you disagree with my thinking or valuation model is really irrelevant because you've been given a blueprint and a framework of thinking that, I'm happy to hear critique on, but what, what the message is, is basically you don't have enough Bitcoin. And if you don't have Bitcoin, you certainly need to get some, even just a little bit. And you need to start learning as much as you can about this, because this is a completely unique innovation in tech that is literally going to change the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to think about because it's like, what is the true demand for for savings in the world for like wealth savings? And it's like pretty much infinite, right? I mean, like everyone would, would like to save, you know, billions of dollars if they theoretically could. And now it's like, you know, of course, once once you get certain to a certain degree of wealth, it's like you may just stop producing for the world and start consuming and just kind of spend from your savings, which is like what people are effectively trying to do, like when they retire. But it's like now we have this asset that like literally cannot be debased. It's supply is perfectly immutable. And it's like the demand for savings is, is massive. And when you combine those two exponential functions, it, you know, fireworks happen as we have seen countless times through Bitcoin's bull, bull runs. And I think we'll probably continue to see countless times through future Bitcoin bull runs. Yeah. And, and this is the fun part. We get to speculate on what happens here. And, you know, I think from a, from an economics perspective, a lot of people get caught up with the fact that they think that if there's say $2,000 trillion worth of uh, value in the world right now, um, that Bitcoin surely can't be bigger than the total amount of value in the world right now. And what I think 
people don't really understand is that when price is determined at the margin, the market cap of an asset is downstream of price at the margin. And so what we could see in the future is rather than $2,000 trillion of value in the world, we could see $100,000 trillion of value in the world and $98,000 trillion is tied up in Bitcoin. So we'd only have 2% of the world's assets uh, tied up in bonds, stocks, property and everything else. And that is a perfectly reasonable assumption to make because of the step function change and improvement to all of those functions of money that Bitcoin brings. Yeah, I can't wait to release this podcast because I think people people's minds are going to be blown. Um, but it was awesome walking through your framework. Um, Peter, thanks so much for coming on. Where can the audience learn more about you and, and the work that you've done? Um, I, well, probably the best place to reach me is on Twitter, um, at Dunworth underscore Peter. Um, there'll be a very uh, friendly, smiley, yellow emoji face on that. So don't get put off. That is me, Dunworth underscore Peter. That's probably the best place to catch me. And uh, if you've got any questions or feedback, any critique, I'm here for it. Hit me up. I'd uh, love to debate that with you. So, Joe, thank you so much for, for your time and the opportunity to share this. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, everyone. Thanks for watching. Uh, subscribe to the Blocker Intelligence Podcast if you haven't already, but this was a fantastic episode. So thanks, Peter. Thank you. Cheers.